0: As you're having a seat, please turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. We will come back and pick up uh, chapter 10 in a couple weeks. Uh, We'll go through that whole story of Cornelius in a couple weeks. I don't want to ignore that, but we're going to be in chapter 11 this week. Uh, Do you remember, uh, as we begin chapter 11, remember our, our first theology lesson from the book of Acts? Very first theology lesson, remember? Remember our first theology lesson, right? Here's a building, right? Might have a steeple. Open the doors, see the church, and then watch the church go, right? That's kind of the book of Acts. We are the church. Church is not a building. Church is not a place. We are the church. The church is people. The people of Jesus Christ. And if we are the church of Christ... The Unstoppable Church of Christ, right? It began on Pentecost and it has been moving forward ever since. Sometimes by fits and starts, but ultimately unstoppable because it is the church of Jesus Christ. And if we are the church of Christ, I would say let's be the best church that we can possibly be, right? So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at one church, the church in Antioch. A church that was vibrant and dynamic and growing and moving out and participating in the Great Commission. We're going to see what lessons we can learn for our church and also for us individually, to become a church that really has deep and abiding impact for the kingdom of God. So I want you to read with me, beginning in Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. So so then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So remember here's the setting. Church is gradually becoming more persecuted, warnings are issued, threats are issued, Peter and Peter's imprisoned, and then things get really drastic escalates persecution of the church escalates and stephen is stoned and as a result of that stoning the church is scattered because more and more persecution begins to break out in the church some people go back to their homes and they tar- carry the gospel with them others travel north travel north through uh, what is modern day lebanon and into syria and the northeastern or southeastern portion of what is now turkey and they stop in the city of antioch And on the way, they have been preaching, but they're only preaching to Jews. But in Antioch, some of these uh, men arrive who have experienced the the outpouring of God's Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And they have experienced the life-transforming work of God's Spirit in their lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they begin speaking not just to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. And the result is an incredible revival. Look what it says in verse 21 again. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Hey, this is new. This is different. The church has been entirely Jewish, and there have been a few Gentiles that have come in, a few from Samaria, and then the Ethiopian eunuch, and then Cornelius and his family. But now we have a mass revival among the Gentiles, and the church in Jerusalem says, Uh-oh, we better go check this out. <laughs> right? Because this is new, this is different, and if we have an honest reading of the book of Acts, this is not what they expected, this is not what they anticipated, even though Jesus told them, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, apparently they were thinking, let's go to the scattered Jews in these parts. And so they did. The first group that came through Antioch, well, they're just preaching to Jews, and Phoenicia preaching to Jews, and all through this area, along the Mediterranean coast, they're preaching to Jews, but then... Some men come and they preach to Gentiles, and the church explodes. The Jerusalem church says, Uh-oh, something different is happening here. The church is not just Jewish any longer, it's moving in a very powerful way into the non-Jewish community. And you know, Antioch was the perfect place for this to happen. Because Antioch was a cosmopolitan church. This is the first characteristic that I would argue. We see in the church in Antioch, a church that has enduring influence and a great impact for the kingdom. It's a church that welcomes change. The church in Antioch was the perfect place for this to start. The city of Antioch was founded in 300 B.C. by Seleucus, one of Alexander's generals. So it was a Greek city, Greek language, Greek culture. And they were even granted Greek citizenship. But it wasn't just filled with Greeks. In fact, uh, this The city of Antioch, there were were multiple cities of Antioch. Seleucus actually himself founded 15 cities that he named Antioch. But this one was special because it was literally where east and west came together. On the edge of Asia Minor and the Syrian desert. City of 500,000 people in the days of Jesus. Filled with large Jewish community, Greeks, but also Chinese and Persians, and Indians, and Arabs. I mean, this was an an amazing melting pot of a city. It was a city that was rich commercially, rich culturally. People coming and going from all over the world, and so they were used to this multi-ethnic, dynamic, cultural environment. Perfect place for the church, in a sense, to begin to go out into different cultures around the world. And so what happens? Verse 20 Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, okay, so from the island of Cyprus and Jews from North Africa, they came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks also. They take a risk. This is something that others have not done. Entrepreneurial evangelists, I would call them. And the gospel explodes and the church moves into new territory and the church in Jerusalem says, we better check it out. And fortunately for the life and health of the church, they sent the right man. And they sent Barnabas. Acts 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 36 is the first place we meet Barnabas. He's described like this. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. Okay, so his name was not Barnabas. His name was Joseph. His nickname was son of encouragement. All right, there are worse things you could be called. Son of encouragement. Man, that's how you want to be known, right? They sent the right man for the job. They didn't send a professional critic to analyze what was going on and to put put together a research paper. They sent a guy who would breathe life into this movement. They sent Barnabas. Read with me verse 23. So when Barnabas arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. And he began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Barnabas says yes. God is being glorified. Let me breathe life into this. Let me bring encouragement. Let me breathe hope. Which is exactly what this young church needed at this point in time. It's exactly honestly what the church worldwide needed at this point point in time it's what the church in Jerusalem needed at this point in time because change is hard isn't it change is frightening change can be threatening but there's no growth without change there is no growth without change in fact if you say to yourself I'm not going to change then you are saying I'm committing myself to a slow death I love this quote don't know where it came from but I love it a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out A rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. The church must change. The church must grow. You know, when railroads were first introduced in the United States, there were a lot of folks who said, uh, this is the end of America. This is the end of American culture. This is a terrible thing. In fact, there was a letter that was written to President Jackson, dated January 31st, 1829. It goes like this. As you may know, Mr. President railroad quote-unquote carriages are pulled at at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour (laughs) by quote-unquote engines which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers roar and snort their way through the countryside setting fire to crops scaring the livestock and frightening women and children. (laughs) The Almighty Let's appeal to God here. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such a breakneck speed. <laughs> that was written by then governor of New York, Martin Van Buren, who had also become the eighth president of the United States, a visionary <laughs> to lead our country, right? So uh, we laugh. We laugh. But there are, are things in us that we resist changing. We push back. But if you're going to grow, you must change. Heraclitus, the Greek writer, said there is nothing permanent except change. Well, he's mostly right. There are some things that are constant and must remain constant. And there are some things that change and they change constantly. We must let them change. And the problem that the church has always experienced is that the church has confused the two. Some things must constantly change, and some things must never change. And we fail when we confuse the two. Let me explain what I mean by that. We need to distinguish between the message and the method. The message is unchanging. It's the truth of the word of God. It's the gospel. Jesus Christ died on behalf of our sins. He was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you believe in him, you have eternal life. The debt of your sins is removed because it was placed upon Jesus Christ. You have life that lasts forever. And God's spirit comes and he lives inside of you forever. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's plain, it's simple, it's unchanging in its content. The method through which we deliver the gospel is constantly changing. Right? It might be written on scrolls. It might be written on parchment and ink. It might be written in books. It might be broadcast by radio, or television, or the internet, or you could probably tweet it in a few characters. The true, unchanging message of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message never changes. The, are con- the, mes- the form in which the message is delivered is constantly changing. Or if I can put it another way, we have to distinguish between function and form. There are functions that the church must do that never change. We do evangelism, we do a discipleship, we do teaching and training and worship. These are things that we constantly do, functions. But the form through which we do those is constantly changing. Worship itself is a great example. Right? Is, it, is it hymns or praise music? Or is it rap or dance? Or art through which we worship? All of those are simply form. Men and women, they are simply form. And they are constantly changing to impact the culture more deeply. You know, a lot of these hymns that we love, that we have sung forever as a church, we hold as sacred. The hymns were put to tunes, many of them that were originally bar tunes. There were tunes that were sung in the bar. The people knew them already, and so Christian writers put new truth, God's truth, timeless truth, in a sense, into a tune that the people already understood so that they could immediately embrace it and enjoy it and sing out heartily, as they had previously in the bar. Now they could come in and they could enjoy that hymn, right? That's pretty radical at the time. Now we say, don't change the tune. Don't change the tune. That's just form. You need to understand that God is a master at communicating his timeless truth through new forms. That's what God does. You know, a lot of your Psalms that you uh, love to read, were originally set to music, and a lot of them actually were originally uh, f- formed by poetry to, to Baal, right? A lot of the Hebrew poetry follows the same kind of structure and outline and some almost verbatim except Baal's removed and Yahweh is inserted. Okay, they, they, they took on a form that the people already understood and put God's timeless truth into it. Uh, the law of Moses is actually in the form of a Hittite sovereign vassal treaty, Why? Because the people understood this concept of a sovereign and his subjects and the obligations that move both directions. And so God put his timeless truth of the law into a form that they could understand and relate to. Greatest illustration ever is the incarnation. God wanted us to understand what he was like, so what did he do? He communicated the timeless word through human form. God took on human flesh so that we could understand and and really apprehend the very nature of God and His character. See, the functions are timeless. The form is constantly changing. The message is timeless. The method through which we communicate it is constantly changing and adapting to the culture so that it can have a deeper impact on the culture. And the problem with the church is that we often confuse the the two, right? What happened in the liberal church years ago? The liberal church said, no, actually everything's up for grabs. Form and function, message and method. And what happened to the liberal church? It lost all power, all effectiveness, particularly because it gave up the timeless truth of the word of God. The conservative church, that's us. We hold to the truth. What are we at risk of? We're at risk of holding to methods and holding to forms and confusing them and saying, no, those are timeless. Right? They're not. And if the church doesn't grow and move on and learn to communicate to the culture of the day, the church will die. We are saying, just start slowly rolling us up. Find locks for the door. Because we're not willing to communicate to the next generation. Hey, that's what causes the church to die. If you look at so many uh, causes of church splits, they are arguments over method or form, not arguments over timeless truth. And what you see in the church in Antioch is this beautiful willingness to move into the culture of the day. Remember when I was at seminary? Our chaplain was a, a, just a wonderful guy. And he brought in all kinds of different uh, speakers and presenters to kind of just stir us up. And I remember one, uh, one week he, he uh, scheduled a kid from Detroit. He was one of our fellow students. He was from Detroit. And he was a gospel rapper. Right. First time I'd ever heard gospel rap. Gospel, I mean, rap was just starting to become real popular. So he stood up in our chapel service at Dallas Seminary, and he, he began to rap the gospel. And man, he nailed it. I mean, he so nailed the gospel. The content was perfect, simple, clear presentation of the gospel in rap form. And you know, students are just, they're loving it, man. They're just eating it up. And I remember after lunch, we're sitting around, we're talking about it, and go, that was awesome. That, that, that dude just brought it. But then there were a few other tables of students who were arguing, About the appropriateness of rap in chapel. And I thought, seriously, man, get out, get into the real world, live with people. Don't train to become a pointy headed intellectual who can communicate to absolutely no one. You gotta be kidding me. This was a thing of beauty. The gospel going out in a culturally relevant form. Kid from Detroit takes the timeless truth of the gospel. He says, This is what will hit my generation. Boom, nails it. Loved it. Hey, church, we have to constantly be looking for those opportunities. Church in Antioch, perfect place for the gospel be- to begin to explode out from a church because they were used to this. They were used to this, right? So, they welcome change, but also, they were willing to cling to the timeless truth. Okay, they understood that distinction and that balance. They welcomed change, but they clung to the truth. Read with me chapter 11, verse 25. It says, so Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So why did Barnabas go and look for Saul? Well, certainly he knew Saul's calling. Take the gospel to Gentiles. He'd heard that story. Saul had been actually preaching in Syria and Cilicia about seven, eight years. He didn't know where to find him exactly. He went to Tarsus, but it's interesting. The verb that's used here actually uh, describes a difficult task, okay? It was hard to find Saul. Why? Because Saul had been disowned. Saul had lost everything. He couldn't just go back to Saul's ancestral home. He had to search hard to find Saul. Why Saul? Because Saul had already distinguished himself as possibly the greatest teacher and theologian that existed in the church. And so Barnabas said, that's what this new church needs. That's what this new church needs. This church needs a solid foundation to build upon. So that they can go out in an appropriate manner into the culture and speak timeless truth. And so for an entire year, they're together teaching the word, laying the foundation. uh, Now about... Gosh, 12 years ago, we built a house. And the initial stages of building a house were were very frustrating to me because it seems like nothing is happening. They come and they clear the land, and that takes several days. And then they put up the forms for the foundation, and that takes several days. And then they, they dig trenches, and they put in the rebar, and that takes several days. And then you wait for the concrete to come. Then you wait if you built a house, you know, you wait and you wait and you can't get scheduled because, you know, because they're building a new stadium at Texas a and and all the concrete's there. You can't get any concrete. Finally, the concrete comes, lay the concrete and then you got to let the concrete cure and nothing's happening. I mean, you've, you've got a, a cleared lot and a slab, just concrete laying there, but there's nothing to look at yet. But if you don't do this well, especially in college station in our soils, what happens? Everything breaks. And pretty soon you look up and there are cracks in the wall. You look outside and the brick's falling off because they didn't do the foundation correctly. And I've noticed when I've, I've gone on tours and I've, I've looked at beautiful structures, everybody walks into the structure and they begin to just look up and look around. I have yet to see someone get down on the floor and go look at this concrete. (laughs) I mean, you know, or go around the outside of the building, crawling through the shrubbery, looking at, I've never seen it. Now, I realize there's probably a structural engineer in here who go, well, actually, Brian, (laughs) I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the rest of us. We don't look at the slab, do we? We go, go, wow, what a cool building. What an amazing building. Well, that building wouldn't be there apart from the foundation. It's not glamorous, but it's necessary. The church in Antioch lays the foundation deep. Let's go back to our functions of the church, timeless functions. Evangelism, exhortation, multiplication, teaching, transformation. All of these are displayed in the early history of the church in Antioch, verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 24. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. The church is preaching the gospel. They're brought to the Lord, they're brought to the truth, the timeless truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is doing evangelism. Church, that's our first calling, the work of evangelism. doesn't matter if you're spiritually gifted for it or not. Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. You might be spiritually gifted. My wife is, and it's just amazing how it works so seamlessly for her, and not so much for me but it's still part of my calling. Do the work of evangelism. Share the truth, the timeless truth that gives eternal life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church in Antioch is doing evangelism. There's also exhortation. Verse 23, when Barnabas arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them to breathe life into their hearts and say, have a resolute heart, remain true to the Lord. Why was this so essential? Because persecution had just broken out against the church. And the church in Antioch would experience persecution. In fact, Jews who disbelieved from Antioch would chase Paul around and persecute Paul. The church needed to have encouragement in the face of certain persecution. Encouragement is a a key role within the church. Because life is hard. Life is difficult. There's persecution. There's sickness, illness, death relationships break, and what do we need from one another? We need encouragement. Press on with a resolute heart because eternity awaits us. It's worth it to live for Jesus in this life. Encouragement. There's multiplication of leadership. Verse 25. Barnabas left for Tarsus because he was looking for Saul. Barnabas was the right man for the job in the first moment when the church was born. It needed encouragement. And then Barnabas realized, I'm not the right man for this next job. The right man for that is another man who has different gifts. And in great humility, Barnabas says, let me go find that man because that's the man that this church needs next. And what you see then happening in the church in Antioch is it really becomes like this leadership engine. It just multiplies laborers for the harvest. Why? I think the example of Barnabas at the very beginning is key because Barnabas steps back and says, let me bring others into this process. Others who are gifted differently than I am in different areas, who are, who are better than I am at certain things. And he steps back in humility, not pride, and opens the door for all to participate and for all to be involved. And so the church multiplies. Within the church, leaders multiply, and then this church will multiply, and it will be responsible for planting churches throughout Asia Minor And into Europe. There's teaching of doctrine. Verse 26. When Barnabas had found Saul. He brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church. And taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians. At Antioch. Can you imagine. Having the apostle Paul for a year. (laughs) Wow. You'd say Brian it's time for you to just sit down for a while. And let Paul teach. I suspect if we knew we got Paul for a year, that we would have church every night for a year. man, we got to soak up everything we can possibly get from Paul. And that's exactly what they did. In fact, if you flip over here to uh, chapter 15, verse 35, okay, Paul and Barnabas made trips, missionary journeys. They went out and they came back. Antioch became their home base. They would come back, and this is what happened. It said Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch again, teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. Antioch became this place where you want to get great teaching, show up in Antioch and sit and absorb, because the people in Antioch, boy, they just can't get enough. Paul and Barnabas came back in. Let's go. Let's have church. I don't care if it's Thursday. We need to hear more of the word of God, and not just Paul and Barnabas, but everyone who came through. Let's listen to these great teachers. Let's learn. Let's go deep in the Lord. For an entire year, at the beginning of the church, they had Saul. So let me make this really practical for you. Imagine that you had just one brand new believer given to you, and you had one year. What would you teach? What would you teach? Because that, in fact, church, is what we are called to do. There is a a place for upfront teaching, like what we're doing here, and adult classes and home church groups. But so much of the teaching of the church is through the process of discipleship, which is your calling, which is my calling. If you had a brand new believer from one year, what would you teach that person? Would you know how to teach that person how to pray, how to study the word, how to confess sin, how to get plugged into community? Would you know how to do that? If you do not know how to do that, you don't know how to make disciples yet. And what is the commandment given to the church? Make disciples of all nations. If you don't know how to do that, Please come talk to me and I will have someone come alongside you and help you learn how to make disciples. If our church is going to grow and multiply, every single one of us must become a disciple-making believer. Then we can become a church-planting church because what we export is what God has called us to export. A church that is involved in evangelism, exhortation, multiplying leaders, teaching, training, discipleship, and finally transformation okay information that comes in and we absorb it into our hearts so that changes the way that we live notice at the end of verse 26 it says the disciples were first called christians in antioch a first time ever they're called saints they're called a fellowship they're called uh, brothers they're called a variety of things but in antioch they're first called christians christ ones followers of christ the community in fact labels them Okay, they were called. It's passive voice. The community labels them as Christians. In fact, the verb that Luke uses here means literally to transact business. In other words, they transacted their business in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) They lived their lives in the name of Jesus Christ. So when people met them, they realized, you know, the only appropriate label for this person is Jesus. Wow. From time to time, I stop and I ask myself, would people label me that way? Would they say that, that my life is so reflective of the character of Christ and Christ is so much on my lips that the first thing that comes to their mind is Christian? And not, not, not even pastor, not my role, not my job, but Christian. These were men and women who were taking care of business, right? Moving into their culture with timeless truth. The result of that The third characteristic, they became overflowing with generosity. Read with me chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and he began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all of the world, that is over, over all the Roman world, the inhabited world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. This they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So we have to ask ourselves, why did the church in Jerusalem need help? There was a a famine that was moving uh, throughout the Roman Empire, probably even hit Antioch from time to time. Claudius reigned from about 41 to 54 AD. And we're told by uh, Josephus that the famine hit particularly hard in Judea around 45 to 48. Okay, so famine kind of was moving throughout that region. And so Agabus comes down before that famine and he says, famine's gonna hit. It's gonna hit Judea really hard and we need to take care of them. Why did the Christians in particular need care? Think about it. The early Christians in Jerusalem were all Jews, and when they identify themselves with Jesus Christ, what happened? Well, they were cut off from their families. So they had no family support mechanism any longer. And because they had identified with Jesus Christ, they could no longer, after a short period of time, go to the temple. The temple was a place where relief work came out from, right? It was, that was the place where money was given to the poor and to anyone who had need. It was a, it was a treasury as well. There was a temple treasury. But the Christians couldn't tap into their family. They couldn't tap into the temple. They were now completely isolated. They were a new family. That's one of the reasons they label one another brother and sister in Christ, because they are all that they have. And so when the famine hits, they have nowhere to go. They have no support. And so this small newly born church begins to help take care of the founding church. In other words, they didn't wait until they grew and they were a mega church in Antioch and had all of their bills paid and everything covered and savings put aside for retirement. They saw the need, they responded to the need and they overflowed, Paul will tell us in another place, with generosity. The opportunity to share Physically, materially, financially, with a church in Jerusalem that had given them birth spiritually, they gave. It is a wonderful picture of their generosity. Now I see that, and I I ask myself, why is it that from time to time I struggle to give generously? I mean, I I don't struggle to give. I like giving, and I do, and I do give. But I mean give generously, really sacrificially. Why is that? Well, sometimes you know, I just don't know about the need. I just need information. And I hear that information, it kind of stirs something up in me and I want to give generously. But honestly, there are other times when I don't because there's, there's fear in me that I won't have enough. If I give, will there be enough left for me? I want you to hold your place here in Acts 11 and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul addresses this issue with the Corinthian believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through, the, through us is producing thanksgiving God. What is Paul saying? Paul is not saying, if you give a little, God's going to make you rich. (laughs) That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not even saying, if you give a lot, God's going to make you rich. Paul is saying, is when you learn to give and give sacrificially and abundantly and generously, God is going to make you into a generous, sacrificial, joyful, literally, Hilarious, cheerful giver. And he will supply what you need to give. He doesn't say that you won't have to make sacrifices or that it won't be hard in to, at times. In fact, the church in Jerusalem sold property, sold things off. Why? So that they could care for the poor. And they gave and they gave and they gave generously. And you know what? Then when the famine hit, they discovered we don't have enough to take care of ourselves. And so what did God do? He supplied for them. They put themselves in a position where God had to supply for them. And so what Paul is saying is God will supply so that you can give. God will supply so that you can give. And the more that you give and develop a generous heart, the more that you will be able to give and give. Even if it seems like a small amount, what God is after is sacrificial, joyful, hilarious giving. Because really, God does not need our money, does he, people? God does not need our money. God made all the money. God made everything. He made all resources. And so when we give, it's not because God needs it from us. It's because God wants our heart. He wants to change us into people who give like God gives. God gave what was actually most valuable to him. He gave his son, Jesus Christ. That's the model for our giving. We give what we value. And in the process, God changes us and transforms us. In fact, what you see in the church in Antioch is they become... This beautiful, wonderful, giving church in every respect. I love this quote by Winston Churchill. He once said, We make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. Isn't that beautiful? We make a living by what we get, we make a life by what we give. And in fact, they overflow in generosity not just with money, but also uh, with the people that they give. Turn to chapter 12 of Acts and verse 25. Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. Let's just start in verse 24. It says, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The church in Antioch gave money, but they also gave people. Okay? I want to walk you through this, this church leadership team that they've got there. They've got Barnabas, right? Barnabas, son of encouragement, a, a Cyprian Jew. So he's a Hellenized Jew. He understands Greek culture, speaks Greek, he understands Hebrew culture, educated in the Hebrew Bible as well. They've got Barnabas. They have Simeon, who's called Niger, right? a black African. Lucius, Cyrene, a fair skinned North African. Manian, which is a Greek form of the name Menachem, he is a Jew who's actually raised with Herod, the tetrarch. Probably one of the sources for Luke in understanding the inner workings of Herod's court. They have Saul, greatest teacher that the church has ever known. And probably Luke, according to tradition, came out of this church in Antioch. That's their leadership team. And they're fasting and they're praying and the Holy Spirit says, I want your two key players. Will you give them up? (laughs) Right? Imagine that. Saul, greatest teacher the church has ever known. And Barnabas, the guy who makes us all feel good about ourselves. Okay? (laughs) Give them up. Hey, honey, do you want to go to church today? Absolutely, man. Paul is going to dig it deep and then... Barnabas is going to come along and make us feel good about ourselves. It's going to be awesome. You know, Paul's going to step on our toes. And Barnabas is going to say, it's okay because you can do it. It's, let's go. I can't get enough of that. And they released them to the Lord. What a huge hole, in a sense, that left in the church that was filled in again by other men and women who were gifts of the Holy, from the Holy Spirit to the church. So they gave. They gave and They gave. Why did they give? I would argue they gave because it was a church that understood that the Great Commission applied to them. It was their Great Commission. It's our Great Commission. I'll give you another quote that I love from the very quotable William Temple. He once said, The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Isn't that rich? The church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Why are we here, Church. We worship so that we can just enjoy God and be filled up with God so that we can go out and do good for others and bring them close to Jesus Christ. We exist for the glory of God and the good of others. That's the nature of the church. And so what do we see in this church in Antioch? They gave and they gave and they gave. Read to me again, verse three. It says, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus, I would argue that uh, this church was not filled with great leaders. This church was filled with great followers. The, The church as a whole is worshiping, they're fasting, they're praying, they are positioning themselves to hear the voice of the Spirit. And so the church hears the voice of the Spirit as one. And the church follows what the Spirit directs. And they give. I will confess to you that I I have my whole life been somewhat of of a hoarder of things. Once I get something, I don't release it quickly. I blame it on my parents. There's something that they embedded genetically in my soul that it's just, I grab it and I hold it, you know? Uh, I, some of you will remember the, the old uh, accounting books that you'd be given for your savings account, checking account, some of you won't, but you'd, as you'd make a deposit, they would take your book and they'd run it underneath the little dot matrix printer and go, zzz, 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 and they'd hand it back to you and it would have the update of all the new money that you had in your account. Well, I had one of those as a little kid. My parents opened an account when I was little, little. And so when I would get money, I wouldn't buy stuff. I'd go, i said, can we go to the bank? And I would stick money, I know, just, it, you know, insight into my soul, you, you get a little <laughs> glimpse of, so why is he like that? All right. So I'd go and I'd take it to the bank and I just loved hearing that printer going back and forth. Zzz, 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 and I love looking at my book and I would take my book out at other times. Just look at, look at the numbers and look at how they've grown. And so when you see those numbers growing, you don't want to take money out because then you got to take it back and you go, zzz, 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 and it's a smaller number. I don't want that. Right? So I would hoard it. I'd hold it, and you know, there's something still in me. Once you get it, it's hard to give it up. Tracy's wonderful. She'll go through our closet. She takes takes clothes out, and she's on. You know, I don't wear this anymore. I haven't worn this, you know, in six weeks. And I'm so I'll let me give it away. And she's going, you know, and then she goes to my side. I go, don't touch my side. I might need that. It'll come back. Really, everything comes back in style. Leave, leave it, alone. leave it alone. She's not no, she you just got a new shirt. You need to give away three. What? There are literally three bags of clothes sitting in our garage for me to put in her car to take, to give. That's hard. But church, you know what? As an individual or as a church, if you don't give, you won't grow. If you don't give, you won't grow. Churches that hoard, whether it's financial resources or people resources that hold on to those tightly, they don't grow. God can't bless that. Churches that give, God gives them more so that they can give more and give more and give more. I think God has blessed this church because it's always been a giving church, always been a giving church. And I think God's word to us this morning as a church would be, man, that's great. Great start. Excel still more. You made a great beginning. Let's keep going. Let's go and let's give and let's give and let's give. Let's be a great church that makes disciples of all nations for the entire history of our church. And let's not be presumptuous about what may come in the future. You know, the church in Antioch hasn't actually sent a missionary in centuries. There is no church in Antioch. That can happen in any place, and we shouldn't be presumptuous. So we should stick to our business. What is that? What is that? We need to welcome change. And we need to distinguish what what needs to change, what must change, and what must be held as a timeless truth that we cling to. And let's not mistake the two and get in arguments over things that really have to change all the time. Let's fight over key doctrine if we're going to. You know, let's guard and protect the faith. But the rest, let's go into the culture. Let's make an impact. Let's become a church that just overflows with Generosity. Okay, so much so that we see the vision out there, and we say, "You know, let's be a church like Antioch, <laughs> a little church in Antioch, baby church in Antioch." Says we can be involved, we can send, we can be the home base of a great church planner who takes the gospel all over the known world, and we can send people to go alongside with him. Actually, you know, what? I could go with him. Let me go. Okay, let's be that church. Now you will recall that uh, early in the semester, I challenged you to think of three people in one place. So on the way in today, you received a card, or you should have received a card that looks like this. If you didn't get one of these cards, then grab one on the way out. Just a little reminder for you to fill out okay, three people that you're praying for to know Jesus Christ. And one place that you want to examine and you want to research, maybe you want to begin to pray for or give towards something you don't know about yet, a place that's beyond... Your Jerusalem or Judea Samaria. samaria It's an uttermost part of the earth that you want to think about and pray about. And support. And you notice then on the back side it says, Praying for my friends. Three people in one place. Get together with one other friend and say, Tell me, who are you praying for? And let's exchange. So that we can pray for one another's friends who don't know Jesus. And for that other place. So that we can stretch ourselves. So that we have a reminder that we have begun well. But let us excel still more. Let's be a a great church, a church that has profound, enduring impact for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. I want to remind you that there are folks up here who would love to pray with you, and maybe maybe God is moving on your heart in a particular way to pray for a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe God's moving on your heart uh, for a particular place, and you just need some encouragement. We have some men and women who have spiritual gift of uh, Barnabas who can... Pray with you and help breathe life into that that desire and that longing that God has placed in your heart. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your son, Jesus Christ, to us. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to allow your son to take on human flesh, to take on a, a form that would communicate your very nature to us in a way that we could understand. And we pray, Father, that we would be men and women who would know the truth, understand the truth and be able to communicate the truth in ways that connects with our generation. Pray, Father, that we would not live for ourselves, but we would live for your honor, your glory, and the good of those around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week week being a blessing. We'll see you next week.